If someone said to me, would you choose to have your novel come out during a pandemic? I would say no. From Politico, this is Women Rule, where we bring you real talk with women bosses. I'm Anna Palmer, senior Washington correspondent and co-author of the Politico Playbook. Our guest today is Curtis Sittenfeld, author of Rodham, a new novel that imagines what might have happened if Hillary Rodham decided not to marry Bill Clinton. There's this conversation around Hillary, which is just preposterous to me, where it's almost like, is she human? Or like, does she have a beating heart? And it's like, of course she's human. Of course she has a beating heart. I feel like sometimes we think that very famous people exist only when we're observing them. This is Curtis's seventh book, coming after her best-selling novels, which include Eligible, American Wife, and Prep. We talked about all of that and what it takes to follow your heart and write for a living even if you know there are trade-offs that come along with it. Leading the life that you know is right for you instead of the life that someone else would be impressed by, I think is really something that matters. And now, here's my conversation with Curtis Sittenfeld. Curtis, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Well, congratulations on the publication of your most recent book, Rodham. For those who haven't read the book yet, you should. Uh, I got an early advanced copy and went through it very fast. It was, it's a great read. Uh, it's a novel that imagines what Hillary Clinton's life would have been like if she had decided not to marry Bill Clinton. So how did you come up with this idea? Well, there's, I think there's sort of two influences that, that intersected. One was in early 2016, an editor at Esquire asked me if I would like to write a short story from Hillary's perspective, um, like as she was accepting the Democratic nomination for president. And I agreed to it. And previously, I had written a novel, American Wife, that's a fictional retelling of the life of Laura Bush. And so because of that novel, I would be invited to write essays about Hillary. And I would say, no, thank you, because I felt like I didn't have anything new to say about her. And when I wrote this short story, instead of the question being, what do the American people think of Hillary? The question was, what does Hillary think of the American people? And I felt like, oh, I, I do have something to say. So that was like a sort of obviously fictitious, but sort of straightforward, historically straightforward short story. But it came out well before the 2016 election. And after the election, I'd had this sort of slow realization that school children who knew Hillary was running, often in many cases did not know that Bill Clinton existed. And I started to think, well, you know, if adults also had not seen Bill and Hillary as so connected, would the outcome of the election been different? I love that. Um, you had said publicly after writing American Wife, which you just mentioned uh, based on Laura Bush, that you didn't want to write another political book. So what made you jump back in with Rodham? It's funny. I mean, <laughs> this is a slightly embarrassing question, but do you know when I said that? No, I, I, I read it. No, tell me. Uh, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that question. That's why I'm asking you. I mean, I don't know. In, in some ways, like usually if, if it doesn't happen that often, but usually if someone quotes me back to myself, I think like, yeah, I said that or that sounds like me. Or like, like, I don't remember saying that, but I would say, I still, but I have to say in, in this moment, I think, oh, come on, like all books are political. So that, that seems like a sort of foolish statement to have made on my part. Um, I mean, it, it, there is something kind of interesting where 
I feel I feel a little bit like, you know, American Wife came out in 2008 and now it's 12 years later. And there is something about writing a book based on a public figure where the book gets a different level, even though it's a novel, it gets a different level of scrutiny. And going through this again, I've thought a little bit like it's like childbirth where like I sort of forgot. And then now that I'm going through it again, it, it reminds me like it's like, oh, yeah, I, I have experienced this. And now I remember and I'm sure I'll forget again in a few months. But, you know, there's so many um like I know you've written a book also like that the experience of writing and then the experience of publication are almost opposite experiences in terms of one is this sort of isolated, very focused sort of soul. Like for me, I'm very much by myself for years at a time writing. And then it's very interactive to, to even even during social distancing, it's very interactive to kind of talk about the book. Well, talk about that a little bit. What's your process? I mean, you're writing about, you're researching, the back of the book talks about kind of source materials that you use. Um, how long does it take? Bring us inside the, you know, kind of behind the scenes, how Curtis Sinfield writes a book. <laughs> it's, it's very glamorous, very exciting. <laughs> um, so, well, th- so this is my seventh book. It's my sixth novel. And then I wrote a story collection. And Every book has been a little bit different in terms of, you know, the subject of the book is different. The structure of my own life is different, like where I live, you know, do I have children? Do I not have children? Like I have children now. I I had my first child in 2009. When I was writing my first book, I was also working and then I was very lucky and have been able to to essentially write full-time since then. So there's always variables. At this point in my life, I would say it takes me between two and three years to write a book, which was true for Rodham. I mostly write in an office in my house. Again, that's a lucky privilege. And for this book, I was doing research and writing, not literally simultaneously, but like in the same day. You know, like I listened to a lot of audio books or, you know, would read books. And then, you know, later in the day, I might be writing. And, and there's a few books that I used for research where I would literally have the book open on my lap, potentially writing a scene, including like Amy Chozik, the, the New York Times journalist's um, book, Chasing Hillary. There's like a few scenes that I was very influenced by Amy Chozik's book or Certainly, there were times that I sat with Hillary's living history memoir um, or or Bill's My Life. <laughs> Bill's autobiography is a thousand pages and the pages in the front started falling out, which like it was almost like the book couldn't contain itself, which seemed like some sort of metaphor. <laughs> the larger than life personality of Bill Clinton, even in his own book. The challenge, I assume, kind of in thinking about this book is there's so much known about Hillary. I mean, just people have a lot of preconceived notions about her. How did you choose to either stay close to the Hillary as we know her or kind of the more fictionalized version? Well, I mean, again, you know, for me, this book was so much about flipping the question and not saying, what does Hillary symbolize? Or like, who is Hillary? Or or, why does Hillary change her hairstyles so often? Which I have never found to be a super interesting question anyway. But it's more like, you know, it's written in the first person. So it's saying, like, I walked up to the podium and gave my, my Wellesley graduation speech. So, I mean, this is all very subjective, but to me, 
that flip in perspective feels fresh no matter what. Like it feels different from all the other ways she's talked about. And, and also there's this conversation around Hillary, which is just preposterous to me, where it's almost like, is she human? Or like, does she have a beating heart? And it's like, of course she's human. Of course she has a beating heart. So it's, so to be able to just kind of like explore that. And, and there's also a phenomenon where I feel like sometimes we think that very famous people exist only when we're observing them. So it's like a politician exists when we're watching them give a speech or, you know, when they're in some video that's been put out on social media intentionally, but they don't like lie on their side and go to sleep at night or they don't like, you know, eat a little midday snack or something. But it's like they actually do all those things. And so showing like the sort of quiet moments was really interesting to me. And it also felt just like really natural. Yeah, no, I mean, you have a kind of an intimacy around kind of her reading at night and how she kind of different things that are her routines, which I think really does humanize her in a way that we don't see, right? That kind of prepackaged, particularly a lot of women politicians, you know, that came up in of her generation. There was a certain kind of image that was projected. Uh, the one question I was wondering as I was reading this and I finished was, did you hear from Hillary or anyone on her team after it came out? So I have never had contact with Hillary. And that's that's the thing that I always should say, like in these these scenes of it's like so, so intimate, so casual. It's like it's also like so fictitious, like to totally invented. It didn't happen. Um, no. So I have not heard from Hillary. And I, I, I wouldn't say that I've gotten any kind of I mean, like like sometimes somebody will say, you know, somebody might reach out on Twitter and say, like, I was an intern for her in, you know, 1997 and she was really warm and she had a lovely laugh. But it, yeah, there, I wouldn't say that that I have any particular inside scoop. And I, I also should say, you know, I did research and and including reading um, memoirs by the female senators who ran for president in this election cycle, Kamala Harris, Elizabeth Warren, Kristen Gillibrand, um, and uh, Amy Klobuchar, my own senator, Amy Klobuchar. Um, but there's nothing in the book that's like a secret, juicy story about Hillary. Like nobody whispered anything in my ear. And it, in fact, it was something really sweet and touching to me was that several people of different generations who had attended Wellesley reached out and said, like, if you if you want to know anything about Wellesley or like Hillary and like they, I, they clearly wanted me to do justice to Hillary and like they really love her. But even that it wasn't like, oh, here's this juicy thing that I can tell you. I mean, I, I feel like weirdly a lot of um, interesting information is publicly available. And if it's not, when you're writing a novel, you can just make it up. So I'm not, I'm not trying to say it's not interesting, but it's not like there's any bombshell in there. Right. I do think one of the, the um, I have very interesting as somebody who has covered campaigns, has covered politicians uh, in this role, I you know focus a lot on women in politics and, and kind of running for office. And I don't want to give away too much of the book, which everyone should buy, but 
In it, there's an incident where Hillary forgot to shave her legs before an important political event. She has an aide in her car. This becomes a scandal, Razorgate. I mean, it's it's like classic political journalism. I can see this actually happening in real life. Uh, did you consider other possibly embarrassing scenarios before settling on shaving her legs? How did you settle on that being, you know, kind of the, the thing that was going to tip off this kind of, you know, mini scandal? Well, so it's funny because... I'm not, I'm, this is a little, I would say, I wouldn't say that incident is based on any particular person, but there is, that rumor does exist about a female politician who's not Hillary. And in fact, someone um, pointed out to me that it's a plot in an episode of Veep, which I, I have seen a couple episodes of Veep on an airplane. I loved them. And I and I, I feel like, you know, maybe now that I'm finished with my book, I'll just, you know, some someday soon, I'll sit for like three weeks and watch every episode ever. But um, so I don't know. I mean, have you ever heard that rumor? I have not ever. I, oh, you have? It surprised me, though. I mean, I, I could see it happening. You know, I mean, there's a lot of other, you know, your your own home state senator hasn't had a lot of issues with, you know, certain issues, you know, eating salads and things like that. But um, I had never heard of the shave, the, in age shaving the legs. I mean, again, I don't, the, the thing, one thing that I've sort of had the opportunity to think about is I, I part of me thinks, and I, I, of course, I can always be, be wrong, but a part of me thinks that, you know, probably, um, you know, a, a political journalist who's still working as a political journalist would never write a book like this because there might be like a high professional cost. But I don't really have any bridges to burn. You know, like I'm not any kind of political insider. Again, there's nothing that anyone took me aside and told me that they're, that I'm like privy to. My other question, because there's a lot of it, there's uh, sometimes fairly detailed descriptions of sex in the book. It is not a, a G-rated book. Uh, why did you think that was important to this storyline? So, you know, the the real underlying premise of Rodham is what if Hillary had not married Bill? And in real life, he proposed twice and she said no. And then he proposed a third time and she says yes. And and they both have talked about this is sort of part of their origin story. Um, and so I, I felt like, okay, I want them in the novel to fall in love and I want it to feel devastating when they break up. I don't want to write him out of her history or out of American history. I just want to want to change history, but I don't want to eliminate him. Um, and so because I'm, you know, writing this this story of like courtship and falling in love and they're in their early 20s. And I, I think that they, they felt like they had found their soulmate intellectually and emotionally. And it seemed to me that physical chemistry would be a huge part of that and would be really organic and natural and almost weird or not convincing if it wasn't there. Like, I feel like in real life, if two people are falling in love, they know if they've kissed or not kissed. They know if they've had sex or not had sex. They know if they, so it's like, of course, of course the character knows those things. Absolutely. Uh, well, let's take a step back. Uh, where did you grow up? Um, I, I grew, I'm happy, happy to switch topics. Cincinnati, Ohio. <laughs> yes, not, not. <laughs> 
<laughs> an abrupt shift there. Um, did you always, perfectly for me. <laughs> I, did you always know you wanted to be an author? You t- kind of t- started saying you were working and writing your first novel. Can you talk to us a little bit about the start of your career? Yeah. So, I mean, I certainly always loved reading and loved writing from the time I learned how to do both, you know, when I was six or seven. And um, I, I don't think that I realistically anticipated that I would become a writer, that it would be my full-time job. Actually, hilariously, when I was in maybe fifth grade, I, I think I probably would have said, I'm, I'm going to be a senator, like maybe a lawyer. I mean, like something totally. Circle. I, I know, exactly. I am 44. I was born in 1975, graduated from college in 1997. And then I worked sort of a, a little bit as as a, as a reporter. I worked, you know, full time, but briefly. I was on the staff at a business magazine that was then in Boston called Fast Company. But actually, only two years after I graduated from college, I entered the Iowa Writers Workshop and got an MFA in creative writing. And I feel like that kind of put me on the path to. I mean, there's something like I think that if you get an MFA, it's something where like at Iowa, I think almost every year there's someone who's like a lawyer or a doctor who stopped doing that. Like it's something where you kind of choose to put writing fiction at the center of your life. And so even after that, like I freelanced and I worked at a bookstore in Iowa City. And then later I, you know, was teaching English part-time at a boys prep school. But I always knew that the thing that I was trying to do was finish a novel. And I sold my first novel. I sold it in 2003 and it was published in 2005. Prep, right? Yes, prep. We often ask the guests to give pieces of advice. You've clearly kind of followed your heart into, you know, what you wanted to do. What piece of advice would you have to somebody who wants to maybe shift careers or has been interested in something, whether it's writing or or maybe something totally different that uh, looking back, you wish you had known then that you know now? Oh, my goodness. That's an interesting question. I mean, I feel like there's probably a few ways to answer it. I mean, one, one thing I would say is, you know, there are all kinds of trade-offs. And especially if you go into a creative profession, it's probably like there's less stability or security. And I think that you kind of have to decide on your own definitions of success, or you kind of have to remind yourself what you're prioritizing and why you're prioritizing it. And I, I have certainly grad school classmates. So now I finished grad school almost 20 years ago. And some people are still working on their first book, or maybe they were, they had a first book published and now they're working on their second book. And again, I'm like obscenely lucky. Like I work hard, but I am obscenely lucky. And not everyone can say like, oh, you know, here's my shelf of books or like, here's my bestseller list. But if your work is important to you, then like it's your life and it, it matters if you do it. And I think some of it is just kind of like, leading the life insofar as this is possible, because this is a luxury, but like leading the life that you know is right for you instead of the life that someone else would be impressed by, I I think is really something that matters more. We'll be right back after this quick break. I want to tell you about another podcast, The Last Archive, from Harvard historian and New Yorker writer Jill Lepore. Lepore asks the question, who killed the truth? She looks for clues and events across the 20th century, from a brutal death in Vermont to the invention of the lie detector to the release of the polio vaccine. 
This show is unlike anything you've heard before. History animated by archival tapes and documents, intrepid field reporting, and old-timey radio drama reenactments. The last archive unfurls like a classic 1930s gumshoe mystery, but takes on the big issues of today. It's brought to you by Pushkin Industries. Subscribe in Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. You've written uh, several books. Uh, this time has to be different considering we're in the middle of a global pandemic. What's it been like to be on book tour? How do you think it's impacted uh, this book compared to others? I think in terms of, you know, it's like there's the pandemic and then there's the the uprising following George Floyd's death, which of course took place in the city where I live in Minneapolis. And I, I certainly think both of those feel really huge and, you know, I think put the publication of a novel in perspective. If someone said to me, would you choose to have your novel come out during a pandemic? I would say, no, I would not choose that. But, but you know, you know, we don't all get to, to choose everything. There's, there's a lot about bu- book publication that the writer doesn't control, even under the best circumstances. And so, and again, I mean, this, like, I can certainly be a very shallow, petty person, so I, I don't want to pretend otherwise. But there is something about having having a book come out now where, like, I think to myself, in some fundamental way, like, there, there are, you know, perks of having a book that are sort of more superficial, but in some fundamental way, if I tell a story and I worked on it for, you know, two or three years and like I tried really hard and I wanted to get the details right and then I like want to give it to someone else and, you know, this book isn't for everyone, but it's for some people. And if someone says like, oh, my God, I couldn't put it down. I stayed up till two in the morning. Like it made me cry. It was so immersive. I forgot that a pandemic was going on. I feel like in some ways that's the essential reason that I write a book. It's like, I want to work really hard to tell you this story and I want you to think it's interesting. And then like, you know, like I'm not, I'm not a very good cook or, you know, there's a lot of things I can't do, but I can, I can like make up this story and tell it to you. I mean, and I, I certainly get a lot out of other books or TV or music. And I, I feel glad that people make those and that they sort of remind me about the sort of special, wonderful parts of being alive, which sometimes in the daily grind can be hard to remember. Speaking about that, I mean, small business have been impacted, including bookstores. Uh, You worked at one. Uh, Are you concerned about independent bookstores, ability to weather this economic storm? What are you hearing kind of just within your industry about what's happening right now? Well, I think probably the most practical way I can answer that is Indies have banned it. Independent bookstores have banded together to do, I think it's bookshop.org. I hope I'm saying the exact website. And it's super user friendly. It's as easy as ordering off another bookstore website. I think that bookstores play a special role in their community. And if you, if you ever go to one to, to shop, but yeah, there, it was, it's funny because I was, I was talking actually to someone yesterday in, in publishing who was saying those independent booksellers are such an important part of the ecosystem. And I mean, they're kind of like tastemakers and sometimes they're like important parts of the, the local social justice movement. I lived in St. Louis for 11 years and left bank books. I mean, that's the place that I like bought a Black Lives Matter sign, you know, 
six years ago or something. Like they're they're very committed social activists at Left Bank. I definitely think independent booksellers are struggling the way almost any independent brick and mortar business is right now. Well, before uh, I let you go, we had a couple of audience questions that I wanted to make sure to get to. Um, the first one, this person writes, one thing I love and appreciate is the rich inner worlds of all of the women characters across your books. How much of you is represented from your own lived experience as a woman? Um, That's an interesting question. So, I mean, I think that a lot of times for readers, there's a temptation to feel like if the book is autobiographical at all, that there's like that the main character is a stand in for the writer. And I think that there's probably parts of me, including maybe very small parts in a lot of characters and they're sort of dispersed. And it's not it's not like they're all like there's one person who's like, you know, the the little mini Curtis per book. So, I mean, there of course, there's some of me. And if I read, I have a lot of writer friends. And if I read one of their books, I often feel like I've spent the afternoon with that friend. I think that my sensibility, it's sort of unhideable, but but I don't I don't see my books as autobiographical. All right, we all end on this one because it's a very political question, less about writing, more about politics. Do you think Hillary would be a smart VP pick? Um, wow. I I have not been asked that. I mean, I think she would have been a smart P pick in 2016. I I think I don't see that happening. I don't see her being picked to be VP. I mean, I know I listened to the Stacey Abrams interview on this very podcast and I, I love Stacey Abrams and I love that she like unequivocally expresses what she wants. Like, I think that's awesome. And that's such a role model for for women in any field to like not not hide our ambition or just be bold and be like, this is what I want. You can say no, but this is what I want. You know, there's no there's no mistaking it. So I don't see it happening. I mean, if if Hillary is the VP pick, I would certainly vote for that ticket. Women Rule is produced by Zach Stanton. Irene Noguchi is the executive producer of Politico Audio. If you're a fan of the show, please subscribe to Women Rule on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Rate us and leave a review. Please share our episodes on social media and follow me on Twitter and Instagram at apalmerdc. You can also join the Women Rule community by texting WOMEN to 66866. 